We are so glad that you chose to be with us today. Um, we have a special guest. We have lots of special guests. And if I could, I would recognize all of you. But we have one that's going to talk to you for just a few moments. And uh, Winter Hendrickson and her husband, Chad, have been foster parents and have adopted children um, in the past. And she is here today just to present some information to us and to you um, about maybe how you can be a part of something that is on the heart of God because he says in his word that pure and undefiled religion is to care for orphans and widows. And so I'm going to invite her to come to the front winter. If you'd come and if you'd make her feel welcome as she comes. I'm just going to use this podium just because I have a piece of paper I need to read off of. So um, thank you guys so much for letting me come. Pastor Tom, you're amazing. Um, my name is Winter Hendrickson. Like you said, I feel like I know all of you guys in here almost. It's like when I think of your guys' church, I think of friends. I think of family. And it's amazing what God can do um, just in a small community with these churches. So like you said, I want to talk to you guys about the mission field of foster care and adoption. And it's more than just foster care adoption. I want to call it a mission field for you guys so that you guys know that you don't have to travel to foreign countries to be involved in missions. It's right here in our backyard. It literally could be in your backyard. Um, there, there's such a need for foster care and adoptive parents in our community. Um, and I know you guys know this. You guys have amazing foster parents in this room. I know you guys, and you guys do Royal Family Kids Camps, which I love, and you guys sponsor that. That's amazing that you guys do that. Um, but I just want to, like, open it up for you guys. If you want to become a foster care parent um, or an adoptive parent today, um, I have those resources for you. I want to be available to you. Um, so let me just motivate you guys a little bit. Why foster care and adoption? Um, me and my husband, we were missionaries to Ukraine, which is a fatherless nation. It's what it's known for. And we saw orphans. We worked in orphan ministry every day, um, a handicapped home and a rehabilitation home for little boys that are strung out on drugs that are also orphaned. Um, coming back from that experience, it's unreal. Like, you can't, you just can't be normal again when you see kids going through what these kids are going through. Um, we came home to the United States. We got married. Um, we, Chad's like, let's do foster care. It's the American orphanage, you know, like that's what he, we thought. We ended up adopting four kids from foster care. It's been an amazing journey. Um, it's been wild. Um, I started a YouTube channel about foster care and adoption, and I was approached by this organization called South Dakota Kids Belong, and they recruit foster parents. And I was like, I sign up, my house is almost full, so <laughs> I can't take any more kids at this point, even though we are adopting from China. Who knows where we're going to go? So, um, so we started this organization, and they're awesome. There's a lady in Spearfish that, hold, that is the head of it, and she recruited eight families to be um, foster parents in the first year she started recruiting, and they haven't seen any foster parents in their community go through the program in five years. So it was very scary for that little community, but... Um, but God. She went to churches because churches are three times more likely to adopt Christians are. And in my opinion, I really feel like Christians could be the best parents for these kids. That's the people who I want to adopt these children. Um, as you can imagine, there's other people that want these kids too that have nefarious purposes, but Christians are the ones that will do the best jobs parenting them, in my opinion. Um, so some really cool things happening too with that organization. They're doing videos of kids 
kind of like a waiting child list that need to be adopted. So I share those on social media. So if you want to follow me on Facebook, I share those all the time if you're looking for a child to adopt. Um, so this is a really big deal in the church. It's not just a social issue. I feel like the church needs to take it on. And I feel like um, this is the solution for the ending of abortion, which is going to happen in our state. I really feel in my heart the ending of abortion will happen. And we need foster parents to arise if, we, if we're going to be advocating for the ending of abortion. So it's a huge responsibility, and I feel like the church can do it. Even our governor, Christy Noem, is totally on board with the foster care movement. So there's a lot of, like, thrust for this. Like, I've been talking about adoption for years, but there's more adoption and foster care talk than ever before. So I'm real excited about what God's doing. He's bringing awareness to a huge need, the people that he loves. Um, so I'm going to give you two reasons why orphans. Um, there's 153 million orphans in the world. And my husband was once asked by a pastor who wanted him to do church planting, but um, Chad wanted to work in orphanages. And he was like, why do you spend time with these kids when we could be planting churches? And he said, well, at the end of the day, they don't have parents to tuck them in at night. So what am I doing? Like, what, what can I do? I need to be their father. I need to take care of these kids. Like, it doesn't matter how much stuff they have. If they don't have parents, like, what are we giving these kids? So he feels like that was another really good, important reason. And like what Pastor Tom said um, in James 127, pure and true religion is taking care of orphans and widows. It's so simple. Like, God said, you want to be religious? Just go take care of orphans and widows. You can do that religiously all the time, and that's, that's pure. You can do that. So he gives us permission to be religious once in the Bible. So that's exciting. <laughs> Just give me a job, right? <laughs> so like I said, the foster care system is the American orphanage. I know a lot of us feel like we don't have an orphanage in the United States. We don't have an orphan crisis. But the reality is it, there, we really do have one, and we have a huge problem with drugs and addictions and um, some really rough stuff. Like, once you get into, the, like, the roots of why kids are in foster care, you, you would want to love on these kids as well. It's not their fault. So I just want to share you, with you a three-minute video, and then I'll tell you a couple more things. Something happens to you when you don't belong. I can't explain it, really. But if you felt it, you know. There are over 400,000 of us in the U.S. foster care system. 100,000 are available for adoption and are waiting for a forever family. The rest of us kids are waiting to be reunited with our birth families and just need a loving foster family while we wait. Without a family, without a place to belong, it feels like no one knows your story. No one really sees you. You feel invisible. You probably don't know how much we need you, but we do. There aren't enough families to love us, to help us heal, to call us theirs. And the truth is, bad things happen when kids don't have a place to belong. Every year, 26,000 leave foster care when they're grown up and still without a family. Half never even got to graduate from high school. Others end up homeless, in trouble with the law, trafficked. It's a big problem, but the solution is so easy, even us kids know it. The solution is you. So it's time you met us, 
Time you really got to know us. You'll see. We are brave. We are beautiful. We are worthy of belonging. America's Kids Belong is a first-of-its-kind solution to the foster care and adoption crisis. It brings two proven models together to find loving homes for children. The first is a grassroots movement that started in Colorado. It engaged the faith-based communities, influence and reach. Combined with high-quality photography and videography to give foster children a face and a voice. The second model comes from a successful government initiative in Virginia. There, the governor used the power of his office to run an innovative campaign that recruited hundreds of families for Virginia's foster children. Combining these two models and with the support of the business and creative communities, America's Kids Belong unites government and faith-based leadership to end the foster care and adoption crisis in the U.S., state by state. solution is you. Will you see our faces? Will you tell our stories? Will you help us belong? Yeah, so like I said in that video, there are 400,000 children in foster care in our nation and 100,000 of them are legally free to be adopted. Um, and sometimes I feel like, as Americans, we just kind of put our fingers in our ears and be like, oh, that's not my problem. Um, I, I, but I promise you if that child ended up on your back doorstep, and you would be like, come on in, I'll feed you, whatever. Like, I just know, I know you guys, I, you just need to meet them, right? Um, that's what we and me and Chad always takes about says it takes about three seconds for us to fall in love with a child. Like every child that comes into our home, we're like, we're attached, we're too attached. Yes, when they go home, we're gonna cry hysterically, but we're, it's fine. We're gonna be fine. <laughs> They're so worth it to love. And um, the sad statistic for me is there's 26,000 teens aging out of the foster care system, which means teenagers that don't have an adoptive family, um, they age out of the foster care system without a family, and that is. The most heartbreaking thing for me to imagine myself as a teenager not having a family not having anyone to care for me when I graduated high school so that just it kills me a little bit so or doesn't even like maybe I won't graduate high school that's pretty common for these teens um, so right here in South Dakota we have 1,500 kids in care in our state um, So when kids age out, I want to talk about, I feel like God is, is speaking to me, like he's saying, like teens for you guys, I don't know if there's empty nesters in the room or something like that. I feel like God's calling someone to care for teens. There's several in our community that actually could come into families right away if you became a foster parent because there is no place for them. They end up in group homes and things like that. They don't have a family. They end up in a, basically an orphanage. So um, less than half graduate from high school. One in four are in trouble with the law. Two-thirds of them will be pregnant before 21, if they're a girl. One in four um, will experience postpartum depression, not postpartum, I'm sorry, post-traumatic stress. And um, one in five will be homeless. And then all are high risk of becoming um, human trafficked, which is a huge deal, because they don't have anyone for accountability to check up on them, which is incredibly sad. 
Um, so those are really intimidating numbers, but let's just take a moment and think of the hundreds of churches in South Dakota, and the problem shouldn't be a problem at all if we have all these churches in South Dakota. It just takes like a few families in each church to take on a few kids, that church family to help those fam families raise children, because we all know in church we raise each other's kids as a community, and um, the foster care crisis would be eliminated in South Dakota, and it would be taken care of by the church, which is really exciting. Um, and this is actually one of the dreams of my life, is that there's more families that want kids than kids that want families, children that want families, and that orphans would find a home and they would be in God's family. So foster care is a place where the, the church can step up and help children um, reconcile with families. You can help a whole family reunite again. That is just beautiful, and I feel like that's part of the gospel lived out, is if we come alongside these families that are like parents that are just kids themselves sometimes and help them get over their addictions, help them co-parent with their, them, and you can see beautiful things happen. This is just this summer, um, we had that experience. We had an 18-month-old baby in our home for two months, and I got to be able to co-parent with his mom, and she's doing great now. We just, just do life together. I'm her mentor mom, and it's beautiful. It was terrifying at first, let me tell you, but God made it happen, like so many miracles along the way. You just love these people. And sometimes we feel uncomfortable working with the government, but what would happen if the church just kind of like took its pride down and said, hey, I want to be a resource for you. Like, I will be your resource for the foster care system. And that would be amazing. I think that we could totally supply that very easily if we as the church. And you might be thinking, I'm in no place to adopt. I'm too old. I'm too young. There's many reasons that might be popping into your mind, but... Many people don't know there's not very many limitations for people to become foster parents. Basically, you have to be 21 and have a uh, child abuse clean background. So pretty chill, like, stipulations for you. Um, like, I, I'm not, I wasn't qualified to be a parent. I was 24 years old when I became a mom to a 10-year-old. And I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> it was crazy. So, And, like, just the other day, I fed my child, like, peanut butter and jelly on a hot dog bun because I didn't have, you know, it's just, we're not, none of us are qualified to parent, so um, this is just reality. And so even if you're older, there is like such a need for teens as well. So if you guys want to know more about that, I would love to tell you more about that. Um, also financially, there is like a stipend for people, like you get about $500 a month per child when you foster them. So there shouldn't really be any cost involved for you, which is incredible. So I think most people don't know about that, which is awesome. Also, once you adopt them, they'll pay for the legal fees for you. So really financially, if that's like kind of your reasoning, like you should be fine. And they take care of some medical help as well. So that's really cool, which is really awesome. We have a great system in that regards. So, and I, I know that not everyone can foster, but there is people in this room that could wrap around families that do foster in your church and help them, and just, like, reach out to them. For me, as a foster mom, like, when someone comes and asks me, like, if they can pray for my kids to, like, overcome drama, like, I just cry hysterically. I'm like, thank you. Like, that's, like, the biggest help for me. Like, so if you have foster parents in here, just go and pray for them. Like, they always need it. They're never going to ask you for anything, but um, just to support them in any way would be awesome, which you guys do. I know you guys really well. So, like I said, um, Adoption has changed my, my life 
completely. It's grown me in so many ways. I became a mom because of it. It's a wonderful thing to do. Um, the kids changed my life more than I changed their life, I'm sure. Um, and we just really like to have somebody feel like they belong is really important. And I think that when we adopt a child, it's saying, you belong with us. You have a place where you belong. I'm 31 years old. I still call my mom regularly. You know, I have a place to go home for Christmas. So all these kids, they need families. Um, just because they're 18 doesn't mean they don't need you anymore. So anyways, I'm going to be in the fireside room after service. So if anyone has questions about foster care, about how you can be involved in it, um, you don't have to sign up today, but you can sign up today. Um, and we have classes starting September 10th. Um, if you do sign up to be a foster parent today, you probably won't get your license till February. So it's a long process, so we're not going to give you kids tomorrow. So just so you know. So if you guys want to think about it, that'd be awesome. So thank you for letting me come and share. All right. Thanks, Winter. And uh, yeah, if you... I'd encourage you, if you want any more information, or even if there's the slightest chance you'd be interested, um, talk to her after the service in the fireside room right over here to my left and to your right. And for now, if you want to grab a Bible from the pew in front of you there, or if you brought your Bible with you, and today I want to talk to you for just a few moments about how to be open-minded how to be open-minded. And I know that for some of you already, you're like, dude, I'm not supposed to be open-minded. Culture wants us to be open-minded, but the Bible says do not be open-minded. But I'm going to show you in just a second, the Bible does call us to be open-minded. Now, not open-minded the way that our culture wants us to be open-minded because our culture wants us to be open-minded based on humanistic ideas or reason or logic or feeling or emotion. And we can take this to an extreme and be so open-minded that we believe everything that's ever told to us. And how many of you know if it's on the internet, it must be true. Yes, yeah, so you can share anything you find on the internet because, of course, it's true. Now, we know that's not true. And we all know some friends that share things and we're like, dude, that's so not true. Um, but that's the extreme of just believing everything. But there's another extreme of being so closed-minded, which oddly sometimes our society calls open-minded, um, but being closed-minded, and no matter how much evidence is actually presented to us, we just won't accept it. And so in Acts chapter 17, so go to Acts chapter 17 if you have one of the Bibles in front of you. It's on page 921. And sometimes we refer to open-mindedness as teachable. So if you're a good, you know, church-going person and open-mindedness just causes you to twinge, um, just say how to be teachable. You can even write that on your notes, and I won't even uh, tell you that you just ruined copyright or anything. Uh, how to be teachable is just fine, too. So Acts chapter 17, we're going to start in verse 1. And because we need to know the backdrop of this story before we dive into the rest, in Acts chapter 1, we're introduced to two guys, Paul and Silas, and they're traveling through the towns of Amphipolis and Apollonia um, and came to Thessalonica. It's hard to say those words sometimes, and sometimes it's not. But here's the important part. There's a Jewish synagogue here. As Paul's custom... He went to the synagogue service, and for three Sabbaths in a row, so we know three Saturdays, three weeks in a row, he used the scriptures 
to reason with the people. He explained the prophecies and proved that the Messiah must suffer and rise from the dead. He said, this Jesus I'm telling you about is the Messiah. So as the Bible tells us, Paul went from town to town. This was his custom. And he's telling the people, the Jews who had these scriptures, that the Messiah they're waiting for, the deliverer that has been promised for centuries, that they've been waiting for, he is not going to be this overpowering king in the sense that they thought. He actually has to suffer and die. And it's been in the scripture all along. They just missed it. And he's proving to them that Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, who they might be or might not be familiar with, is this Messiah. Now, you have to understand, when Paul proclaims this in a Jewish synagogue, there would probably be some gasps. <gasps> I mean, that would almost be considered blasphemy to some of them. There's no way. And so, verse 4, some of the Jews who listened were persuaded. And they joined Paul and Silas along with many God-fearing Greek men and a quite a few prominent women. But some of the Jews were jealous. So they gathered some troublemakers from the marketplace to form a mob and start a riot. They attacked the home of Jason, searching for Paul and Silas so they could drag them out to the crowd. Not finding them there, they dragged out Jason and some of the other believers instead and took them before the city council. Pause. We need to look at this for just a second. Um, this has not much to do with our message today, maybe, but it might come back around in a bit. But I want you to notice how disagreeing with Paul's teaching escalates for these nice Jewish religious people. Okay? They, I, want, I want us to understand this because we do this in our culture, and I want you to know the ends never justify the means. Sometimes we think in our culture that we can be mean to people and we can walk over people and we can slander people and we can, because we disagree with them theologically and we can actually not maybe go to this extreme, but the way Jesus talks about the gospel, if we hate someone, it's like murder. And so slander and hatred and the way we talk about people might actually fall into this same kind of dragging them out. And then they can't even find Paul and Silas, so they just settle for Jason and this other guy. And these guys are out for blood. So they have gone from disagreeing with them and the way that they view the scriptures to really just wanting to harm them, sabotage them, and hurt them. We in our culture today, even the culture of the church, tend to demonize those we disagree with. Be careful. When you disagree with someone theologically that you don't turn them into a demon. Make sure that you handle yourself appropriately, as we'll talk about here in just a second. So, repause. Verse 6 continued, Paul and Silas have caused trouble all over the world, they shouted, and now they're here disturbing our city too. Jason has welcomed them into his home. They're all guilty of treason against Caesar, for they profess allegiance to another king named Jesus. And the people of that city, as well as the city council, were thrown into turmoil by these reports. So the officials forced Jason and the other believers to post bond and release them. And that very night, the believers sent Paul and Silas to Berea. I wish I had unlimited time to walk you through what has just happened here. But in essence, the way Paul preaches the gospel and the way all of the apostles preach the gospel, they call for this total allegiance to Christ. And the Jews are actually saying that that total allegiance to Christ means that you're not allegiant to the Roman emperor, and that is treason, okay? 
And I believe if Paul, I believe this personally, can't really prove it, but I believe if Paul preached in some of the American churches where we have politicized the gospel, we would also call him treasonous. Because some of us think America is God's design, but it really isn't because it's still a worldly system. And now we can use government forces like we've talked about to, to help stir causes, but the political system is actually not God's way of bringing light to the world. The church is. The government is not supposed to be helping foster kids. The church is. The government isn't supposed to be serving the poor. The church is. And yet we politicize it, and, but that's a different sermon for a different day. So they send Paul and Silas to Berea, and we would be tempted to go right on to the next verse and think, well, they just arrived at Berea, but Berea is 45 miles west of Thessalonica. And a lot of times when we read the scripture, we just move on to the next verse, and we don't look, look at the context and realize this wasn't the next hour. This wasn't even the next day that they arrived in Berea. This was a little bit of time, but... Verse 11, when they arrived there, again, they went to the Jewish synagogue. And again, they began to preach the message. But look at this. The people of Berea were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica. And they listened eagerly to Paul's message. They searched the scriptures day after day to see if Paul and Silas were teaching the truth. As a result, many Jews believed, as did many of the prominent Greek women and men. But... Verse 13, don't you hate that when things are going along so well and then the butt comes in there? And, but when some of the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God in Berea, they went there and stirred up trouble. Now, I want you to understand something. It's 45 miles away. There's no internet. There's no cell phones. There's no postal system. How long did it take for this word to travel back to Thessalonica, 45 miles away? And why on earth are they so concerned that they have to go to Berea and continue to stir up trouble? I don't know. Maybe we'll get to that later. But let's focus first on these Bereans because they're more open-minded and I believe we need to be like them. Some of your translations may not use the word open-minded. It may say they were of more noble character. They were of more noble character. That does not mean that they were born to royal families or noble families. It means that their character was such that they actually acted in a way that you would expect nobility to act. Nobility in this day and age would have a, a certain demeanor. We don't, they don't argue in certain ways. They don't carry themselves in common ways. They, they process things differently. They reason better. They, they were just, they were a higher standard of character. Okay? And so these Bereans were of that type of character. Because of the way they're acting they were more open-minded or they were more noble in their character. And I want us to look at the four principles that we see. And I think we need to apply those same principles to our lives so that we in, can be just like them. So first, they listened with eagerness. So we should listen with eagerness. Eagerness or willingness. I like how James says in James chapter 1, Verse 19, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone 
For those of you that don't know Greek, the word everyone in Greek means all people, everyone. Okay, everyone. Okay, there you go. So everyone should be quick to listen. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. This is the antithesis of the American culture. We are quick to speak and very slow to listen. We respond to people based on what we assume already about them. We tend to listen through lenses. I mean, I know you don't actually wear lenses on your ear, but we tend to listen through lenses. And so if I already believe something about you, then what you're saying, I actually filter through my belief of who you are, not basically what you're actually saying. So if I think you're already a false teacher, then I'm going to, dil- I'm going to process everything you're saying through that lens and not really listen to what you're saying at all. And we've already made up our mind most time based upon our past experience with people, what's being said, and we don't take time in that moment to be quick to listen and actually try to understand what's being communicated. In fact, in marriage counseling, when I work with young couples, I actually teach them skills to actually ask questions. So when your partner says something to you, your spouse comes and they, like, they say something, instead of just reacting to what they just said, you should first start to ask questions to make sure you understand what's being said because you, you listen and you process things differently as men and women. You listen and process things differently based on your upbringing, based upon your past experiences. And so you have to make sure that you're actually responding to what's being said, not responding to what you think is being said. And the Bereans were of noble character because they were eager to listen. I do not want us to confuse eager with a feeling. Okay? It doesn't mean like they felt like doing this. But something in their behavior caused them to be eager. They were maybe as Paul says in Colossians, setting their minds on things above. They were choosing to act a certain way to be eager. It doesn't mean that they felt like listening to the word. It doesn't mean that they were always easy to listen to Paul. I mean, some of the the scriptures actually tell us that some people thought Paul was hard to listen to. They didn't even like listening to him. I mean, that's shocking for us to believe that Paul, the apostle Paul, the great apostle Paul, who wrote all of these scriptures to us, was actually hard to listen to. And some of us blame the people we're listening to because, you know, they're just, they're, well, they're boring. They're hard to listen to. But the eagerness isn't the responsibility of the person teaching. It's the responsibility of those of us that are hearing. Now, pause just again for one second. I did not say that there is no responsibility on the teacher. The teacher has a responsibility to present the word clearly, to present the word in a way that people want to hear it, and that responsibility will be judged by God, and he will say, you either did well or, you know, you should have done better. Unpause. Okay, so there's a responsibility here, but our responsibility as hearers is to engage with it. And we tend to sometimes be apathetic in how we engage with the word. Some of us are so intent on reading through the Bible in a year that we're okay getting to the end of a chapter and having no idea what that chapter just said to us at all. But hey, I just checked it off for today. I read through the Bible last year. Didn't change our lives at all, but we read through it. That's not eager to listen. Eager to listen is I get to the end and I'm like, what did I just read? I don't care if I check off a box today. I better go back and read that again. 
Eager to listen means when I come to a worship service, I don't spend more time on social media and text than I do engaging with the word. When I come to a worship service, if I'm nodding off, being eager means I'm not going to sit here and nod off. I'm going to go stand in the back of the room and I'm going to make sure I pay attention because what is being shared is not just something, you know, haphazard. This is the living word of God and I need to pay attention. I need to engage myself in it. I don't need to make my shopping list or all the things I want to do at the fair today. I need to be eager to listen. And sometimes eager to listen means I got to be disciplined to listen. And so... The Bereans are a great group that we should pattern our lives after. We should listen with eagerness. The second thing they did is they studied the scripture daily. They studied the scripture daily. Now, the translation we read used the word to examine or to examine carefully, to some say investigate, some say studied thoroughly. They studied the scripture. So... Dramatic pause to drink. It's not enough to just listen eagerly. I mean, you can listen eagerly to someone teaching and be like, I really like that. I'm going to do that. That's, it's not enough to listen eagerly. You have to now study the scripture, examine the scripture, so that you know if what is being taught is true. The scripture for these people back then was basically our Old Testament. It wasn't quite the Old Testament, but that, you get the idea. That's what they had. So when it refers to it, it refers to the writings, the revelation of who God is. And it was passed down from, you know, Moses wrote the law and the history of Israel was written and then the, the prophets wrote down their messages and then the Psalms were written by various people. And so all of these things that they have, these written revelations of how God acted in the past, how he still acts, his plan, all of these things were given and yet all of them pointed to Christ as the Messiah. But they started to process them in a way that was inaccurate. And so Paul comes along and says, no, the way you're processing that is inaccurate. So they studied the scriptures and some of them believed Paul was right and some of them believed Paul was wrong. And we know now, because we can look back, that the ones that thought Paul was right were right. And in our day and age, we don't have the benefit of hindsight. And so sometimes someone comes along and they say, you know, the scripture actually teaches this or the script, because just like them back then, we have a tendency at time. Now we've been given the New Testament. We've been given a, the fuller revelation of Christ and who he is. And he came as the representation of who God is and he paid the price for our sins. And so we have the New Testament also, but some of us tend to still put our presuppositions into the Bible and not take the Bible and let it speak to our lives. And someone comes along and they say, hey, I, the Bible doesn't really teach that. The only way you're going to know is if you're in the book. Now, there are ministries today that are actually fully devoted to just every week they take someone who is like a, a teacher that is well-known in our, our culture. And they tell about all the reasons that person is a heretic and they're wrong. I, that's a great ministry if you think the Bible teaches that. I don't think the Bible teaches that. I don't think it's my concern whether this person teaching is correct or not correct. What they are teaching, I will wrestle with. I will talk about. But the person themselves, not my, they, they're over there and I don't have a relationship with them so I don't need to attack them or try to correct them. I'm just going to focus on what they're teaching. 
And I would actually rather teach you the truth of God's word and teach you to study the truth of God's word so that you don't have to run back to me every time you hear a teaching and say, is this right? You need to know for yourself. You need to learn to study the word. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, the apostle Paul writing back to Timothy says, as for you, continue in what you have learned and become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures. Again, that word, the writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, from time to time, translators will actually say the Bible, for the Bible is God-breathed and is useful. Please understand, I'm not saying it's not. But what Paul is writing is the word scripture. He's writing that the writings or the Old Testament is actually God-breathed and is useful for teaching and training. He's not even talking about the New Testament yet because he's writing it in that moment. That does not mean that for us, the New Testament is not God-breathed. It just means that the entire Bible is God-breathed. And the entire Bible is necessary for us to have an understanding of what one part is talking about. You read one part of the Bible, you have to make sure you go to the next part of the Bible and you interpret it based on the whole scripture and not just what you think it should mean. You have to study the context. You have to study the, the culture. You have to understand what is being done in that moment and make it applicable then to our lives today. But as Americans, we're lazy. We're apathetic when it comes to study. We don't want to study anything. We want someone else to tell us everything and then we'll just you know, decide what truth we want to have and what truth we don't and we'll just do stuff based on that. And yet the Bible repeatedly tells us to know it, study it, put it into to process and, and, and context. There are two words when it comes to Bible study that sound the similar, but they're not. One word, just so you, you know, here's your $10 theological word for the day, exegesis. Exegesis is where you study the context of a, a passage that you're reading. You study the, the letter that it's in, or you study the book that it's in. You study who it was written to. You study the culture around it. You study all of these nuances. Then you come to understand what it's actually meaning for those people in that time at that moment so that you can draw the meaning out of the text so you can apply it to your life. That's exegesis. There's another word called eisegesis. And eisegesis is where I take my presupposition and I put it into the text and end up validating my belief. So I'm, I'm not going into the text, I'm just reading it at face value and making it mean whatever I want it to mean and, you know, who cares what it meant to certain people at certain times, I'm just going to make it, I'm going to make it mean what fits my preference today. And when we do that in one place and we use eisegesis over here, then our exegesis is incorrect in other places. Does that make sense? Study the scriptures day after day. And I believe, as 2 Timothy chapter 3 tells us, that we need to do it in the context of community. Paul says, you know those from who you learned it. Why does he say that? Why does it matter who I learned it from? Because the litmus test of false teaching in the scripture is not the teaching itself, 
but the fruit of the teacher. Do you understand what I'm saying? Let me say it again, in case I didn't say it just right, because I might not have. The proof of a false teacher, I said teaching, teacher, in the, the biblical sense, is not whether or not what they're teaching is true or not true. It's the fruit of their life. It's the fruit of their life. You'll know a false teacher, Jesus said, by their fruit. And you can't know their fruit by looking at them from a distance. We think we know people's fruit by looking at them from a distance. But the only way you're going to know people's fruit is in community. You're going to do life with them day after day because they're going to make mistakes and you're not going to judge that mistake in isolation because you know them. You've developed a relationship with them. You saw that they repented of that mistake. You saw that that was a genuine mistake and not a way of life. But in our culture today, we've got people that preach on TV, and so it's easy for us to look from afar and say, that's a false teacher. Well, we technically really don't know because we don't have a relationship with them. What they're teaching in that moment might be false, and we need to deal with that, and we need to wrestle with the teaching, but we have to be careful labeling this person and that person. Paul says, you know the people. You're in community with them, and that's how you study Scripture. You don't study Scripture in isolation. You study it together with the body of Christ. So that's the second one. The third one, you have to believe the word. You have to believe the word. I know for some scholars and maybe some of us in this room, it's too much semantics to say that the word and the scripture are different. I think they're different. I think the word scripture is used in the New Testament and I think the word of God is used in the New Testament and I think they're different. And I don't think the word of God just refers to the New Testament or just the writings about the message of Christ. Because the word logos, this Greek word, actually means the proclamation of truth about Jesus. In fact, in John chapter 1, verse 1, Jesus is the word of God. He is the living word of God. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it tells us that the word of God is alive, it is active, it is sharper than any two-edged sword, and it penetrates to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and it judges the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And so, Scripture is not just what's written. It's an active thing in our lives. The way James refers to it is, don't just listen to the word and deceive yourselves. You have to do what it says. In the same way, faith or belief by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. Because I believe it's possible to memorize the written word and yet never come to know the active living word. In other words, we memorize scripture, it's in our head, we spit it out, but we don't live it. It hasn't transformed us. It hasn't come alive in us. Think of the writings of scripture as a map. Think of God himself as the destination. God is meant to be experienced. Experience is not a bad word. But experience has to be rooted in the scripture. It can't be your experience and my experience. This is what grounds our experience. Otherwise, we all get off into la-la land and do all kinds of crazy stuff. And we don't want to go there. But we want to encounter God. If I asked you, if you as you came back from vacation, hey, where'd you go on vacation? 
And you started listing off destinations and, you know, and I said, well, show me some pictures of that. And you showed me like postcards and you showed me, I'm like, well, where are you guys in it? Oh, well, we actually didn't go to those places. We just sat it in our living room and we looked at the map and then we Googled it and looked at the, (laughs) we'd be like, but yet that's how some of us treat the word. I mean, we, we got the map, we know all about God, we can spit it out, but yet we've never, we, he doesn't walk with us. He doesn't transform our daily lives. He doesn't change us into his image. That doesn't downplay the importance of this book. They're both important. And when one of them gets, gets uh, promoted to a position above the other, then there's problems. When we want to experience God but not be grounded in his scripture, that's problems. When we want to just have the scripture and we don't actually experience God, that's problems. John chapter 5, Jesus said, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life, but these are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me and have life. He said it in Matthew 22, You're in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. Paul said, I didn't come to you and teach you with eloquence and all of these high-sounding things that just impressed you with my, my reason and logic. I came to you with a demonstration of power rooted in the scripture. It's not either or. It's both and. And if we're going to be like the Bereans, we need to listen with eagerness, study the scriptures, believe the word. And the last one, I think we need to be humble and kind. We need to be humble and kind. The American culture is rooted in pride. (laughs) I mean, we have a nationalistic pride. We have a sense of Proud as a, we're proud, I'm proud to be an American. I mean, it's just who we are. Please don't, please don't misunderstand. The scripture says pride is not a good thing. <laughs> in fact, in Romans chapter 12, the apostle Paul says, live in harmony with each other. Because again, we need each other to understand the scriptures together. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. And don't think you know it all. I have yet to meet a human being on this planet whose theology is absolutely perfect. I've yet to meet them. Because none of us have. We're all in the process of working out what the scripture's saying, what the scripture's meaning, and we're always learning. We're always understanding that it didn't say what we thought it said because we've learned something from archaeological finds that show us, hey, this thing didn't even exist. There are times that people translate a scripture and they actually use something from the wrong period of time to actually say this happened and it wasn't even happening at that time. They'll actually take the words of Jesus and say this was a common Jewish tradition in the time of Jesus, but it actually wasn't a common tradition in the time of Jesus because it was actually 20 or it was actually 200 years after the time Jesus passed away and was resurrected. And yet they use that as a sense of understanding scripture. So don't think you know it all because at the end of the day, none of us do. And then Paul again in 2 Timothy chapter 2 Don't get involved in foolish 
ignorant arguments that only start fights. Could all of us please post that over our social media right there? Can, can I just say, as a recovering social media argumentative person, <laughs> people don't get saved through those arguments. I mean, if you want to have a conversation with someone, do it in a private message. Don't do it in public, on social media, okay? The servant of the Lord must not quarrel. The servant of the Lord. How many servants of the Lord? All that are servants of the Lord. Must not quarrel, but be kind to everyone. Be kind to everyone. Able to teach and be patient with difficult people. By the way... Do you know who the difficult people are? All people. Yeah. Because it just takes you meeting the right person. You are a difficult person to someone. I am a difficult person to someone. We're all difficult people to someone. You just have to meet the right person and you'll be difficult. So gently instruct those who oppose the truth. Gently instruct those who oppose. Don't throw them under the bus. Don't call them the Christ, the demon reincarnate, antichrist. Gently instruct. And if you don't have a relationship with the person that you need to gently instruct, don't even worry about it. Pray for them and then tear apart their teaching. Focus on the teaching, not the teacher. The word... I don't really have time for this, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. The word heresy, this is one of my favorite things in the, the New Testament. The word heresy uh, has been so misused in our culture today because we talk about heresy and we immediately assume, again, it's referring to a teaching. But the word heresy actually refers to a division in the body. The only time, it's only used one time in the entire scripture to use to be referred to as a teaching that's splitting the body, and Peter uses it. Peter uses the word heresy to say that there's a destructive heresy, a teaching, entering into the body and it's dividing the body. All the other times it's used in Scripture, it's actually used of people who are people who are dividing the body. It's not the teaching that's the, the dividing the body, it's the way people are responding to the teaching that's dividing the body. That's heresy. And some people today in our culture are actually being more heretical than the people that they're actually speaking out against. And they think they're actually defending truth, but they're actually dividing the body in ways that Jesus isn't in. We don't want to be like that. We want to be kind, we want to be humble, and we want to process through what God's word is saying as a community. Does that make sense? So, there they are again. You want to be of more noble character? You want to be more open-minded? Be eager to listen. Be quick to listen. Be slow to speak. Study the scriptures daily and do it in a community of believers. Believe the word of God. Let your experience be rooted in the scripture. Let your scripture bring out the experience. And be humble and kind. Actually have conversations with people that differ from you theologically and process through it. Don't think you know it all. Ask questions. Process through what's being said to make sure you're understanding the scripture 
and not just imposing your belief on it. And so, Father, I thank you once again for your word. I thank you that you have demonstrated your love for us in coming to this earth. You haven't left us as orphans. You sent us your spirit. You've given us your word, the written revelation of who you are from beginning to end. God, we don't have to sit in this room today and wonder what you're like. We don't have to sit here today and hope that the way we think is actually the right way. We've got eyewitness accounts of people that not only were with you in the Old Testament, but people that walked with Jesus when he was physically on this earth, of people who saw him when he rose from the dead, people that watched him ascend into heaven. Thank you for giving us the written record that we should study daily. But God, help us to to experience you through that process. Help us to come to know you in all of your fullness. Help us not to be content with what we already have experienced, with what we already know. God, help us to study the scriptures daily. Help us to be eager to listen. Help us to believe, to trust in your word fully. And ultimately, help us to walk in humility and kindness. Holy Spirit, I ask that you take those words, that you press them into our hearts today. See, in this room today, there are different people, different backgrounds, different life experiences, different places in your life. And everything I just shared with you from God's word landed in every lap differently. You don't have to agree with everything I just said. Sometimes I wonder if I agree with everything I preach because I'm in a process of learning what God's word is saying. I study it. I pray into it. I listen to people that I agree with, people I disagree with so that I can grow. We hash it out. But here's what you have to take. What is the Holy Spirit saying to you right now in this moment? What's that one takeaway that he's saying to you? Here's where you need to, maybe it's the way you listen. Jesus actually said, take heed to how you listen. Because if you don't listen well, you don't get more understanding. Maybe that's the area the Holy Spirit's saying, you need, to, you need to step up your eagerness to listen. Maybe it's your studying of the scriptures. Maybe you've become apathetic. Maybe it's your experience with the word of God, the living, active word. Maybe it's humility and kindness. I don't know, but I, I'm, I'm hoping that there's something that we've agreed upon today that the Holy Spirit has come alongside you and said, hey, Here's an area that I, I want us to work on together. And so at the end of this service, we give you an opportunity to interact with the Holy Spirit and just to allow him to kind of work with you in that process. In just a moment, the prayer team is gonna come back to the front. And if you want to be prayed for or you wanna have a conversation with someone, we're here, we're available for that. So I wanna invite you to stand with me and I'm gonna pray a prayer of blessing over every one of us 
But if there's something maybe you need to spend some time in prayer with, or maybe you just need to process with another person, we're gonna give you an opportunity to do that. And so after I pray, if you need to be dismissed, just do it quietly. Let this be a place of prayer for those that wanna spend a little bit more time here before they move on. And so Father, I pray your blessing over these people today. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would bless them and that you would keep them. I pray that you would cause your face to shine on them, that you'd lift up your countenance upon them, that you'd be gracious to them and that you would give them peace. May these words find their, find their way deep into the soil of our hearts and transform our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Men, if you want a time of prayer, you can come to the front. If you need to be dismissed, just do it quietly. Let this be a place of prayer for those that want to remain. God bless you as you go.